0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: Hello, and welcome to the B side for episode 1646 of our national conversation about conversations about race, a fucked up cornucopia of resentment. I'm Anna Holmes here with MTV News senior national correspondent Jamil Smith. Welcome back, Jamil. Thank you. Uh, some of my best friends are black author Tanner Colby. Hi, Tanner. Hi, Anna. Hi. And uh, joining us from D.C., Adam Serwer, senior editor at The Atlantic. Hi, hey, Adam. Hey. Hey. <laughs> so on our last episode, we discussed the spike in hate crimes since Trump was elected, the already occurring or normalization of, of Trump in the media, and we just kind of took some time to check in with each other emotionally. Speaking of which, Jamil... How are you feeling?
2: I'm doing better. I think that, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. every day I'm not waking up with the sudden realization that Trump is president and uh, breaking out into a cold sweat Mm -hmm. like I was pretty much for the first week. There's been some good writing that's come out of this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's helped me sort of deal with, you know, not only the trauma and the surprise of his election, but also there's a lot of great ideas being tossed around about how to strategize and how to prepare for what's to come now. Do we really know how to prepare? Or do we know everything that's going to come? No, but I think that we can start now and uh, and get active.
1: Adam, what about you? How are you doing
3: in general? Uh, I'm great. Professionally, at least, it's an interesting time to be in the business. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and? Okay. Well, we want to have our listeners chime in, and they did. So we have AC Valdez, our producer, with some of what you all had to say.
0: Hi, everybody. So um, I'm going to start out with this email that we received from Christian, Subject line, from a recovering white nationalist. I was a white nationalist for many years, mostly in response to being uncomfortably close to the O.J. murders and having been robbed at gunpoint by black men on two separate occasions. But I've been listening to your show as part of a racial sensitivity recovery program that I devised for myself. At any rate, I wanted to tell you that Baratunde, on our last episode, was spot on in his assessment of how we feel. I felt every bit as crushed the night Obama was elected as he probably felt on November 8th of this year. The night Obama was elected, it felt like a conquering army had taken over my country as I heard the jubilant shouting all through the night from outside my window. So needless to say, we were ecstatic when Trump took back the White House. I think I speak for most white nationalists in saying that he wouldn't have been our first pick, but he definitely gave us the impression that he heard us and was fighting for us. A lot of the phrases he used were like secret code to us. He tapped into that shameful but very real feeling in us that I have mentioned. Oh, and one more thing. It was a mistake of the media to use the Russia connections to try to take down Trump. White nationalists love Putin. We love how he has stood up to Obama and won. I know this is terrible and unpatriotic to say, but I feel that someone has to. So Christian didn't leave us with a question, but I did think it was interesting that a white nationalist
2: uh, recovering is he He recovering or not? I was going to say it sounds like he's at the beginning of that recovery, if anything. Yeah, Yeah, but he he may
1: backslid a bit during his recovery. Uh, Wow,
4: I think he's he's absolutely right in the sense that if you're a white person who accepts and embraces and sees your status rising with a changing America, if you're an educated urban. Like someone like myself, you know, I I work in this area. I deal with people of color. I I write about these things. The changing of America is a net boon for me. And so that's the framework that I see it in. And if you've been raised. Why are
1: you personalizing it so much? Why is it a net boon to you? I'm comparing. a net boon to the country.
4: No, what is a net boon to the country? But I also see it as a net boon to me as opposed to this guy saying what he felt the night of Obama's election. And, you know, for, for 400 years. The premise of this status was that any white man, even the lowest status white man in this country, was at least better than black people. That was sort of like, you know, the, the social hierarchy as it was understood. And in one night, and I don't think any of us necessarily really grasped how dramatically we were overturning that with Obama's election, even just as a matter of symbolism. We were saying that a black person who goes to Harvard and climbs that meritocracy ladder is, in fact, higher status or is perceived as higher status than someone like the listener, and that is a fundamental sea change in the direction this country was going.
1: I don't know what you're saying, Tanner. I guess I don't, and I don't know what you're saying. You think he's right about like what? What is the listener right about that he's he's right that to, to equate the way that perhaps some of us felt after Trump's election with the way that white people felt after Obama's election? Because I don't think that's the case at all. And no, because and Obama the, was not. Obama was not an aberration in the history of of american presidential politics except for the fact that he was a black male it wasn't like he had he 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 didn't spend his campaign or his life trying to blow up the very institutions or structures that 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 made this country work in the ways that i think donald trump was during his campaign i guess i don't know what you're saying the listener is right about and i'm a little irritated by that analogy that the listener made well but i mean just
4: Frankly, my grandfather, his whole life, he was a poor, he was poor white trash. He was a poor working white man sitting on his table. And he would say, if you ain't better than a black man, you ain't shit. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't say black man. That was the, that was the status for those people. Poor white people, working white people. If you read the the book, White Trash by Nancy Eisenberg plays it out brilliantly. You have a white elite in this country and they sold working and poor white people a bill of goods. They conned them. They said, because of the color of your skin, you are a part of the elite. You are a part of the majority. You are a part of the ruling class. Mm-hmm. And they bought that. And they said, yes, we get to be high status even though we're not at the end of the day. What? And we've what happened under Obama and what Hillary, to their perception, promised to push too far was to flip it such that A white elite was trading them in. And Jamel almost kind of said this in one of his pieces. He said with the basket of deplorables comment, Hillary was telling working white class racist people that they are no longer needed in the Democratic coalition. He said that specifically. And so if you have Hillary and Obama who represent the new elite coastal whatever, as they see it saying, all right, the white elite is now going to make common cause with people of color and we're going to invite them into the governing coalition and all you poor middle class and working class white people in the flyover
2: states you're now just going to be the white trash is how they felt right okay, and sorry. i think that I that wanna... gets to the key of it i think this is about feelings it's not necessarily yes. about perceived any kind of material status. reality it's about perceived status was, uh, yeah, and also yeah. a buy in it's sort of like them taking the blue pill saying like you know what i'd rather stay in the con i'd rather stay in this you know mode of thinking that you know positions me at least in my own mind, uh, you know, above black people, above other people of color, above immigrants, above disabled people, all these other marginalized minorities that Trump purports to discriminate against. I think that what you have in that, in that analogy though, is a real fault is <laughs> you haven't won anything. You haven't right. won anything.
4: Like, no, yeah. no, no, no. They, they've con the, They've now screwed themselves even more.
2: Right. And, and, it, and it seems like, you know, even with his analogy, great. I'm glad he's a recovering white nationalist as he claims, <laughs> but I mean, it seems like he's still to some extent buying in the con, I think, unless he's just starting to speak from the voice of white nationalists who aren't similarly recovered.
3: So I, I think there are a couple of things interesting about that statement, one of which is it's a hallmark of white nationalism that white nationalists view themselves as a kind of embattled minority, which is why he felt like that analogy was appropriate. The comparison between Trump getting his feelings when Trump got elected and black people's feelings when Obama got elected. But I want to make another observation that, about that statement. It was He argued that it was a mistake to try and undermine Trump with Putin because white nationalists love Putin. There's always been two strains of American nationalism that have competed in politics. One is the sort of cosmopolitan, give me your tired, your poor, anybody can be an American. And and the other is the sort of ethno-nationalist tradition of this is a country of white Christians. And if you lose that identity, then it's not America anymore. You can see how that other tendency in the past has actually worked against, you know, a common American nationalism. I mean, that's why there was a civil war. And in some sense, there was no way to undermine Trump or to make it seem like Trump was disloyal to the United States because he was so obviously committed to that ethno-nationalist creed that the people who might otherwise have been persuaded that, a, that say, Obama was under the influence of nefarious foreign powers trusted Trump in part because his echo of white nationalist themes of white people being under siege by Muslims, Latinos, and Blacks, let them know that he was someone who could be trusted.
0: Okay, next we're going to go on to Corey. I'm a white Jewish-Canadian family from Israel. I was listening to your latest episode, and I felt the need to weigh in on something Fazilat Islam was talking about. Uh, Fazilat, for people who haven't checked out the last episode, is a uh, Pakistani immigrant filmmaker and reporter. She mentioned the hatred she was seeing, especially in online communities, towards Jewish people and how surprised she was. I have to say, I am not surprised. Even here, living in Canada, land of Trudeau, we have seen a rise in hate crimes since the emergence of Trump, including a wave of swastikas being spray-painted around our nation's capital in the last couple of weeks. From the time I was young, my mother, whose parents are Holocaust survivors, instilled in me the idea that they hate us. Who? Everyone. They're quiet now, but over and over again in history, when it comes time to single people out, Jews are right there. Easy targets. I never felt like I believed her, but I suppose I did internalize it. And when I started receiving messages from people online showing images of dead Jews being thrown into ovens, I knew she'd been right all along. The truth is, none of us are the target until we are. For many Jews like myself, our white skin will only protect us so far. They hate us, and they've always hated us. Why? Because they need someone to hate. I'm not quite sure I can get behind Fazilat's feeling that the community fostered over all our shared victimhood is an inspiring thing. I'm just not feeling it yet. I'm too worried right now about Trump and far-right forces on the way in France, Germany, and potentially in Canada. But I do hope she's right that we'll all get through this together and come out stronger for it. Thank you so much, Corey.
1: Adam? (laughs) Well, actually, Mm -hmm. hold on. Let me say something and then maybe you can chime in first. It's interesting that we got that email because we were thinking about doing an episode about anti-Semitism. And we didn't do it for reasons that had to do with one of the participants not being able to do it and we might do one in the future. But I'm I'm noting that this is something I think we should talk about at length on an episode upcoming. Adam was going to be on that episode, and perhaps he'll join us for the one that we do in the future. Adam, what do you think?
3: So a lot of Jewish people I know are receiving a lot of hate online and have sort of been awakened to this reality. But I think, you know, there's a part of me that's, uh, that, you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic, obviously, I get some of that hate when people realize that I'm Jewish. But this has been a reality for lots of other groups on the internet for a really long time. And I think that it's important to distinguish between the targets of Trump's online supporters and the targets of Trump's policies. Trump has explicitly proposed using the power of the state against Muslims, black people, Latinos. He has not done that for Jews. And while I totally understand why a torrent of online abuse would make Jews anxious, and particularly Jews have typically not fared well under the kind of political climate that Trump is fostering. I think it's important to sort of step back and look at the big picture and distinguish between the explicit targets of Trump's policies and people who are being attacked as part of a broader, nastier climate online.
1: I don't think it's limited just to the internet. I mean, mm. when, as the listener said, there have been instances of defacement. I don't know if that's a phrase. Instances of defacement. There have been. De- there's been. There's been defacement. Perhaps <laughs> in various cities around the country that that are explicitly anti-Semitic and invoke Nazi s- symbols, including in a children's park about a half a mile from here in mm. in liberal Brooklyn. And then the other thing I'd I'd say is that how does this all kind of square with, or how does the appointment of Steve Bannon as one of Trump's chief advisors and who is a known anti semite, I guess I guess I don't think it's as it's as virtual maybe as. You just presented it. But I do take your point that about, about policies.
3: What I'm trying to dis- – I mean I think I said this last time when we were discussing hate crimes as well. I think hate crimes – hate crimes have a, have a way of firing the imagination because they are – they're often violent or in some cases they're more symbolic like swastikas being drawn everywhere. But there's, a, there's sort of outbursts of public feeling that may express a, a larger public uh, zeitgeist or whatever. But mm-hmm. as I said last time, you know, the issue is really – What Trump is going to do with the power of the state and who he chooses to protect or not to protect Mm -hmm. or who he chooses to use the power of the state against or not to use it against. The reality is, is that that's going to affect way more people than hate crimes. Mm -hmm. And even though hate crimes are horrible, the larger issue is that. And as for Bannon, Bannon... (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm not really sure what to say. It's absolutely extraordinary that someone who has his expressed views is advising the president. Jewish people have uh, in the United States should absolutely be concerned about that. On the other hand, as I said, Trump's platform is not constructed. It, what he ran on and what he is proposing to do is not an attack on Jews in particular in the way that he has attacked other minority groups. Well,
4: and you also have the fact that Trump's other main advisor and obviously the person who does all of his homework reading for him is Jewish, his son-in-law Jared Kushner, who is emerging behind the scenes or seems to be almost the key player in, in the whole thing because Trump's only mm-hmm. lo- real loyalty is to family. Whatever his lo- whatever his relationships, as someone you know tweeted, this is what cronyism look like looks like when you don't have any friends. There's his two sons who are, let's face it, just not the <laughs> most. <laughs> Capable. And then you have Ivanka and you have a son in law. Bannon, Rens Priebus, and Paul Ryan, and anyone else is disposable. I mean, right. it seems to be. So, what the relationship in there, you know, I think it, we don't know if Jared Kushner is going to solve the Israeli Palestinian peace problem yet.
1: Yeah, we do. He, no, he's not.
4: He's yeah. not. Okay, he's not. <laughs> But the anti Semitic piece of it, how that translates into policy, like Adam is saying, I don't well, I don't I don't see that becoming an express part of policy.
3: There's a reason I didn't mention Kushner and Ivanka, and that's because I do not believe that having relatives who are minorities in any way prevents people from holding prejudice against those minorities. It's mm-hmm. very easy for people to make personal exceptions to broader bigoted views.
2: And it also uh, doesn't speak to the fact that, you know, even if you don't hold those views yourself, you're willing to cater to those views in order to secure votes. Right. And that's what the Republican Party has been doing for a very long time with other marginalized minorities. And now we're seeing that expand, it looks like, to uh, to Jewish voters.
0: One last email that uh, I want to get to from Erica. Hi, guys. Today in Boston, we had a forum dedicated to discussing racism, which was planned by the city and hosted by our mayor, Marty Walsh, at Emerson College. I watched the live stream of the event, and I'm going to send you a link with the recording, so uh, we'll put that in the show notes. It was a really interesting conversation with far too many ideas and suggestions to go into any one email that I think you would all appreciate. Listener recommendation, I guess. But I was wondering if a sitting mayor of a major city calling for an open forum with the explicit goal to tackle racism is an anomaly. It feels like political figures tend to avoid any action or statement that could be interpreted as the voters I represent are racist. Love the show, Erica. (laughs) So Uh I don't know how many forums Mm -hmm. have taken place around this kind of thing, especially since Trump's election. But have you all been hearing or seeing anything about
3: that? I would say that I don't know if there have been any forums, but big city mayors, uh, uh, it's been noted by others, are expected to be a big fan of opposition, in part because they represent diverse constituencies including people who would be affected by the very policies that trump is proposing to enforce
2: i'm looking more towards not just mayors but also the states I when mean, you see this move uh, xavier becerra to california c- congressman who's now going to be the attorney general replacing kamala harris who was elected mm-hmm. to the senate yay if i may speak for the californian at the table uh <laughs> the uh the, the resistance we're going to see from that state in particular, I think, is going to be key, not just with regards to mayors declaring you know, sanctuary cities, but you see the University of California college systems declare that their campuses will be safe places for undocumented immigrants. So I'd like to see how the federal government plans to combat that, because I anticipate that they will.
1: Has anything, I mean, has, has anything or as much been written ab- about this? I mean, it's very possible that a lot has and I just haven't seen it. Adam, you read everything. (laughs) Have you seen anything about this, (laughs) about the potential showdowns between state governments and the federal government?
3: Oh, well, a lot has been written about California. I I mean, people are sort of comparing California under Trump to Texas under Obama, Mm -hmm. which is that it's going to be the sort of vanguard of the legal culture war between a Trump administration that has an ethno-nationalist ethos and a california that is increasingly left-wing and represents a diverse pluralist vision for the country
1: we're going to move on to the regular episode so thank you to everyone who's tweeted written and called in if you want to call us give us a ring at 612-888-RACE if you want to write us or send a nice high audio quality voice memo that's great too the address is showaboutrace com. check your podcast app in a little bit because the main episode will be dropping very soon